Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the Opperman Report brought to you by Audible.com. Uh, you go to uh, audibletrial.com front slash Opperman Report and you get yourself a free audio book. Just got to sign up. Uh, every Friday night, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com, and simulcast on CJ Mars Radio, 365 Live, hazyradio.com. And next week uh, on Friday night, our first Friday night, we're going to be simulcast on ParaX Radio. Uh, then we're rebroadcast uh, throughout the week on awakeradio.us, Firehorse Radio, WTRU Radio, and on Saturdays, Penny Entertainment on blogspot.com. No, blogtalkradio.com. That's what that's called. Okay, tonight, we got a huge guest. Um, fascinating guy. Uh, his name is Daniel Sheehan. He's a famous uh, civil rights attorney. He's been involved in Watergate, Pentagon Papers, uh, Project Blue Book, uh, worked for Jimmy Carter. Uh, Karen Silkwood case, Iran-Contra, and he's the author of The People's Advocate, the autobiography of an American constitutional trial attorney, Daniel Sheehan. So, And you can find that book, a link to that book, on the Opperman Report blog. Last week, we had Dave McGowan, uh, Weird Seeds Inside the Canyon and Program to Kill, William Ramsey, Abomination, Devil Worship, and the Deception in the West Memphis Three uh, Murder Trial. Um, and uh, you can find those uh, uh, archives up on the Opperman Report YouTube channel and on our Spreaker channel, Opperman Report Spreaker channel. Now, last week I told everybody, hey, go to a YouTube Opperman Report and subscribe. A ton of people went there and subscribed, but a lot of people went and they went to the old Ed Opperman YouTube channel. So you're not going to find any new content up there. I don't upload anything new on there. It's nice to subscribe there. A lot of good interviews and stuff, but there's nothing new going up there. Uh, coming up, uh, we got Ward Churchill. Uh, we're going to be doing a show about the Biter-Meinhof gang, about the Red Army faction. Uh, we got Bobby Seale, one of the founders of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. We have the wife of Jeffrey McDonald, and we're going to be doing that whole story about Jeffrey McDonald and, and the, the big uh, murder down there uh, near Fort Bragg. We've got a guy coming up next week named Thomas Metzger, and he's going to be telling us a story about how he infiltrated the Mormon church. And then I'm going to have a guest coming up, too. We're going to be talking about the Secret Service, U.S. Secret Service, all the scandals going on there. And in the after show tonight, I'm going to be getting into a lot of stuff uh, about my participation in the, the uh, 2012 uh, uh, congressional investigation and the congressional hearing into the Secret Service misconduct down in Columbia and everything I know about that. There's a lot that I know about that that I haven't talked about on the air uh, that I've been doing a little research on, and I'd like to get all that out. Uh, hey, don't forget. Uh, our guest from a couple of weeks ago, uh, Paul Godet, uh, running for judge here in Clark County, Nevada, Department L. You can go to his website, paulgodet4judge.com, Department L. And tonight, 
If you want to go meet him in person, he's over at Stoney's, uh, the, the country music place over there on the Strip at uh, 611, uh, no, 6611 Las Vegas Boulevard, uh, Suite 160 Las Vegas, Nevada, 89119. Good old Paul, good day, running for judge here in Clark County, Nevada. Okay, well, let's see what else. Uh, notes. Okay, and the rest. Okay. Without, oh, real quick, man, because this is a listener-sponsored station. Freedomslips.com needs to raise uh, some huge funds this month because they're doing some uh, technical uh, um, improvements on the server and that kind of stuff. The equipment they have is not up to snuff uh, to what we need to get the show out there, the quality with the, the increased audience that we have. Uh, so they need like a nice big chunk of money this month, like a $2,000 increase uh, just to cover that. Uh, so you go to freedomslips.com and click on the donate button in order to keep the station going. But tonight, no further ado, we got with a civil rights attorney, uh, Danny Sheehan. Danny, are you there? I'm right here, Ed. Man, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited. Uh, why don't you tell the audience about yourself and about your history, man, all the, all the, the, your accomplishments uh, uh, in your uh, profession? Well, I got, I, I got asked to do this, actually, in this uh, book that I just got through publishing called The People's Advocate uh, by CounterPoint Press out of Berkeley, California, that uh, so many people have kept asking me about to tell them over and over again about things I had done, they said, look, you ought to sit down and write a book about this and give them the kind of one mile wide and one foot deep on everything that you've done. And that's what I did. So I'll give folks a, a brief overview of it. Uh, I am a 1967 graduate of Harvard College uh, in American government and American foreign policy. Studied under Henry Kissinger uh, and studied under David Reisman in sociology and studied under uh, uh, Ken Galbraith in economics. Back during those halcyon years, I had Henry Kissinger for American Foreign Policy. Uh, I graduated in 1967 with the, the Harvard uh, College nominee for the Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford. Uh, I went to Harvard Law School and uh, was the co-founder of the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review. We established the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review, and I was the first co-editor of it. And in the course of being the editor of the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review, I initiated a couple of different cases that went all the way to the United States Supreme Court while I was still in law school. The first one was called Eisenstadt versus Baird, and it was the, the case that challenged the constitutionality of a Massachusetts state statute, a criminal statute, that made it unlawful to distribute birth control information to unmarried people. Uh, and so I, I was brought in to uh, help represent uh, uh, Bill Baird, who was arrested right off the stage at Boston University for displaying a birth control device, a can of MCO foam, to uh, the young freshman entering class at Boston University. The uh, Middlesex Sheriff came in and arrested him right off the stage and was going to criminally prosecute him. So I was contacted at the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review and asked to help prepare the defense. We did and went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and it was declared unconstitutional, uh, a violation of the Ninth Amendment rights of uh, unmarried people to have access to uh, birth control information. Then I did the case that ended up establishing the right of journalists to protect their confidential news sources. Uh, I was representing uh, uh, Paul Pappas, 
a young NBC television reporter who was given special permission by the Black Panther Party to come in and interview them at their headquarters during the riots that broke out uh, following the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in April uh, of 1968. Uh, I went in uh, and we represented uh, Pappas. We filed a motion. He was subpoenaed by the, uh, the district attorney's office uh, in Massachusetts and was ordered to reveal his confidential communications with the leaders of the Black Panther Party, etc., in New Bedford, uh, Massachusetts. He refused to divulge the information, uh, was held in contempt. We went all the way up to the Supreme Court in Massachusetts and then to the United States Supreme Court. And this was the case that ended up establishing the right of journalists to protect their confidential news privileges. So I got to take that case all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And in that context, I got to write the amicus briefs in front of the United States Supreme Court on behalf of the New York Times and NBC News and CBS and ABC and the Washington Post. And so I got to know a lot of those fellows. So I got to know the executive vice president of the New York Times, Jim Goodell. And so when the Pentagon Papers were brought to the New York Times by Daniel Ellsberg and given over to Neil Sheehan, uh, I was in the firm that was contacted to represent the New York Times. And uh, I'd been brought into that firm to do the case in front of the United States Supreme Court for NBC News from with, with Paul Pappas. And so we ended up being asked by the New York Times to represent them to stop the Nixon administration from getting an injunction to stop the New York Times from publishing the content of the 47 volumes of the Pentagon Papers. And so uh, I was in that case as legal counsel for the New York Times all the way from the trial court through the Second Circuit Court of Appeals into the United States Supreme Court. And uh, we ended up winning that case in front of the United States Supreme Court and being allowed to publish the Pentagon Papers. Uh, and I was also one of the point briefers to the United States Senate uh, in support of the Cooper Church Amendment, which was uh, drafted by Bobby Kennedy's uh, foreign policy, chief foreign policy advisor, Professor Abe Shea at Harvard Law School, uh, to cut off all the funding for the Vietnam War. And uh, so I was involved in that and working in Bobby Kennedy's campaign back in 1968 when he was assassinated on June 5th of 1968. Uh, so I went on up, instead of going into Bobby Kennedy's administration, which he, I would have if he had uh, lived to see the election, so I went on to the big number one uh, Wall Street law firm, Cahill, Gordon, Sonnet, Rindell, and Ohl, uh, representing the uh, NBC News. And we ended up taking, when we won the, the Pentagon Papers case for the New York Times, we ended up taking the uh, account uh, away from the other law firm that used to represent the New York Times. And so we represented NBC News and the New York Times. Uh, I was there, and also in that... When I was there, I was brought in to help defend the Panther 21, the uh, 21 top leaders of the Black Panther Party that were arrested by the New York State, uh, New York City District Attorney, Frank Hogan, 
and they were prosecuting them for a bizarre and completely groundless uh, set of charges, uh, asserting that they were terrorists and that they were going to be blowing up the Statue of Liberty on the 4th of July of 1970, and that they were allegedly planning to uh, blow up Macy's and Gimbel's on, uh, on Thanksgiving Day during the parade. <laughs> this it turns out to be an all a complete fantasy of an infiltrator that was sent into the into the by Panther Party by the New York City Police Department. Yeah, that was New York's longest-running trial, wasn't it? Yeah, it was 18 months. Yeah. It was an 18-month trial. And uh, after, after 18 months of trial on 157 separate criminal charges, it took the jury less than two hours to come up with 157 innocent verdicts. And uh, Judge Murtaugh, <laughs> the judge, was furious and jumped up and down and, and pounded his gavel and said, there's no such thing as an innocent verdict. You've got to get back into that jury room and come back out with either a, a guilty or a not guilty verdict. So they went back in, and after 20 minutes, they came back out with 157 innocent verdicts again, <laughs> at, which point, <laughs> at which point the whole courtroom exploded and jumped up and down, and the, uh, and the jurors jumped out of the jury box and came running across the courtroom and started hugging the defendants. And, uh, and I remember that I was, uh, I was interviewed by Howard K. Smith uh, in the immediate aftermath of the trial from ABC, and he said that, Mr. Sheehan, isn't it uh, your, your defendants have been uh, insisting that they couldn't get a fair trial here in an American courtroom? Uh, doesn't this demonstrate that the system works? And I said to him, I said, well, if you mean by you know arresting people who are totally innocent on a whole series of trumped up trumped up charges and held in jail for 18 months, you know, uh, and basically try to destroy the entire infrastructure of a political party in the United States, then I guess the system worked. And in any event, the, uh, the one case after another like that happened, and uh, I ended up leaving the big Wall Street law firm. They decided that, that quote, I would be happier elsewhere, <laughs> uh, and that the interests of their corporate clients and my interests were not exactly the same. So I ended up being recruited to go to F. Lee Bailey's uh, criminal defense office up in uh, Boston. So Lee Bailey brought me in to be one of the three uh, criminal defense attorneys in his law firm with with him and uh, Jerry Alch. And uh, I was there when we did the Pentagon Papers case, or excuse me, the Watergate burglary case that, uh, that uh, the, the uh, wiretapping specialist, James McCord, former CIA wiretapping specialist, uh, retained, came to retain F. Lee Bailey to be his attorney to defend him. Uh, but Lee Bailey at the time was under indictment down in Florida in front of the Northern District of Florida. I actually represented F. Lee Bailey in that case to file all the motions to dismiss all those charges against him. Uh, and when charges were dismissed against him, uh, the, the, he had already been, he had already retained as his lawyer Jerry Alch, who was the other partner in our office. So Jerry Alch technically represented James McCord. And it was during that representation of him that James McCord wrote the famous letter to Judge John Sirica blowing the whistle on Richard Nixon and the White House plumbers unit, exposing the conspiracy that had been going on, burglarizing offices, including the office of Dan Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, 
uh, ended up supporting the dismissal of all of the criminal charges that the Nixon administration brought against Daniel Ellsberg for turning over the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. Uh, and so we, we ended up, I ended up at F.D. Bailey's office during the defense of the Watergate uh, case and uh, leading to the exposure of Richard Nixon and his resignation. And I left and went, I left Bailey's office and went back to Harvard University. I graduated from the college in 67 from the law school in 1970. So in 1973, I went back to the Harvard, Harvard University to do my master's work and PhD work in comparative social ethics. And I uh, was, was there uh, when the wounded knee occupation occurred. I was, uh, I was doing my master's degree studies in comparative social ethics at Harvard, and uh, I was brought in to be uh, amicus counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union for the American Indian Movement. So I was there during the occupation uh, in 1973 of the, of the town of Wounded Knee, and we ended up representing the major leadership of the American Indian Movement and brought on the motions to dismiss all the charges against the leaders uh, of the American Indian Movement based on prosecutorial misconduct. And we ended up winning those motions, and all of the charges were dismissed against the major leaders of the American Indian Movement arising out of the occupation. So I was there. I, came, I went back to Harvard Divinity School after having taken off that semester to do the Wounded Knee Trials, and I was back at Harvard at the Divinity School and was recruited to become uh, general counsel for the United States Jesuit Order, the national headquarters in Washington, D.C., from the Harvard Divinity School. So I went down to Washington, D.C., and became chief counsel for the United States Jesuit headquarters and the co-director of their national social ministry office. And for 10 years, from 1975 to 1985, I uh, was co-director of the National Social Ministry Office, drafting up the public policy positions for the United States Jesuit Order, which is the largest order in the Catholic Church, uh, which is itself the largest uh, single denomination in the Western civilization of Christianity. So I got to do that for 10 years, and during the, during the course of that period, I ended up defending, representing uh, Father Daniel Berrigan, Father Phil Berrigan and Sister Liz McAllister and the others who were on the 10 most wanted list for the FBI for going around the country uh, leading draft board raids. They would go into the draft boards and, and open up the files and take all the files out and burn them out of the parking lot and burn them to keep men from being uh, drafted into the United States Army during the Vietnam War. So I represented them. I represented Dr. Benjamin Spock, uh, Dr. Ralph Abernathy, the head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and uh, a lot of other fairly well-known war protesters uh, during that whole period of time. Uh, and then we were asked to do the Karen Silkwood case. So I went in and became chief counsel for the Karen Silkwood family, the woman that was killed at the nuclear facility out in Cimarron, Oklahoma, outside of Oklahoma City, back in November of 1973. We brought it on in 1975. We brought on the, the cause of action uh, and sued the Kermagee Nuclear Corporation, 
and the American Central Intelligence Agency and the FBI and others for her death. Uh, she was killed uh, by having someone ram her car and run her off into a concrete culvert and killed her and removed the documents from her car that she was delivering to David Burnham from the New York Times, who was waiting for her at a local Holiday Inn to have her bring these internal documents from the Kermagee Nuclear Corporation that showed that the management of the corporation was stealing 98% bomb-grade plutonium uh, that was being uh, smuggled to the state of Israel uh, by the American Central Intelligence Agency and uh, high-level management officials of the Kermagee Corporation. The, uh, the Kermagee, the, the uh, Robert S. Kerr of the Kermagee Corporation was also the chairman of the United States Senate Armed Services Committee. He was the United States Senator from Oklahoma, owned the private nuclear plant, and they were using it as a cover for producing and smuggling a bomb-grade plutonium, not only to Israel, but also to Iran under the Shah of Iran and to South Africa under the Afrikaner uh, administration, and also to Brazil. Uh, we uncovered that during the Karen Silkwood case. We ended up winning a $10.5 million judgment against the Kermagee Corporation, which was the largest uh, civil judgment in the entire history of the United States up until that point in time. And we also won the ruling that declared unconstitutional the Price-Sanderson Act, which was the law passed by Congress that was attempting to establish a cap or a maximum ceiling on the amount of money damages that an American jury could award uh, against a private nuclear corporation that allowed special nuclear materials to be, or radioactivity to be released into the neighborhood from a private nuclear facility. And the, the federal court... Uh, in Oklahoma declared that to be unconstitutional as a violation of the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial that is guaranteed by the Constitution in a civil case. And so that, that law was struck down, and so therefore there was no uh, financial limit on what type of money damages could be awarded against a private nuclear facility for releasing radioactive materials into the community and so from that date forward, in June of 1979, there has not been a single new private nuclear power plant uh, ordered or built in the United States and because what, they were unable why. to get insurance for that. So that was uh, that, that, and it was during that case. We also did the Three Mile Island litigation. I was chief counsel in the litigation of Three Mile Island that stopped them from pumping all of the radioactive waste materials. Uh, out of the damaged nuclear facility at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania into the Susquehanna River. We stopped them. We got an injunction stopping them from pumping that into the river and proved that there was a powerful meltdown at the core and made them have to disassemble that facility. Uh, and we came back to Washington from doing those cases in Oklahoma and Pennsylvania, and we were immediately uh, asked to represent the, the young people that had been killed down in Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, by the Ku Klux Klan and the American Nazi Party had killed six uh, major organizers 
that were attempting to organize a chapter of the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers down in the textile mills in North Carolina. Uh, the, the young people had organized a demonstration in favor of unions supporting organizing black and white people together on an equal basis into the unions. And the Ku Klux Klan and American Nazi Party came and uh, drove up and killed them when they were demonstrating on the streets. It was actually caught piece. on video, and it's been shown on TV. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. No, the, the whole the whole thing was caught on video, yeah. so it was perfectly clear that they had just driven up and murdered these people. But they were acquitted by an all-white jury uh, by and they had the hands of an all-white uh, prosecuting attorney. They were acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. We went in uh, and and uh, prosecuted them under the Federal Civil Rights Act and uh, and got a million-dollar judgment against the Klan and the Nazis and against the uh, police department, the Greensboro Police Department, for colluding with the Klan and Nazis, planning to allow them to come in and kill these people. So we, during, during that case, we were asked to go do the first... We, we did the first-degree murder defense of the first elected black mayor in the deep delta of Mississippi, uh, Mayor Eddie Carthan, in 1984, he was elected to be the mayor of Chula, uh, Mississippi, uh, or down in Chula, Chula, uh, in Holmes County, the 10th poorest county in the entire United States. And we went down and, and defended him uh, against completely false charges of first-degree murder and investigated it and found who the murderer actually was and uh, brought them in and put them on the stand and broke them on the stand and uh, got him acquitted, and at the same time uncovered a major uh, cocaine and heroin smuggling operation that was going on at the hands of the white plantation owners down in Holmes County, uh, smuggling Jamaican ganja into the United States with the permission of the Central Intelligence Agency to help fund uh, the, uh, the, Jamaican, the Jamaican campaign of Edward Siega, who was running against the socialist governor of, of Jamaica, uh, Michael Manley. The CIA was supporting Siega, and so they allowed a major uh, marijuana smuggling operation to start to begin with. There was this Jamaican ganja, but they, they eventually filtered into it smuggling cocaine and then heroin. And we caught them doing that. That turns out to be what the basis of the murder was, that had happened down in, in Chula, Mississippi. Uh, and when this murder occurred, the white plantation owners decided to try to frame up the first elected black mayor to blame it on him, falsely asserting that he had killed a political rival, whereas that political rival was, in fact, working for the white plantation owners, uh, helping them with their smuggling operation. Uh, so we we did those those cases. We came back to Washington and were immediately asked to go down to Texas to uh, defend the American Sanctuary Movement uh, people down there. They, uh, they had been arrested. The first people were arrested in the American Sanctuary Movement in March of 1984. Uh, the Catholic Archbishop of Texas, uh, Dr., uh, Father John Fitzpatrick, uh, had us come down and defend the, the Catholic sisters and the, uh, the social workers uh, that were arrested in trying to help transport uh, political refugees that were fleeing from Guatemala and El Salvador into the United States. 
And we defended them, and uh, we ended up uh, striking down as unconstitutional a secret executive order that had been issued by the Reagan-Bush administration ordering the Immigration and Naturalization Service down in Brownsville, Texas, not to obey the 1980 Political Refugee Act that authorizes people who are in our country who harbor a good faith basis for believing that if they return to their own country, they will be persecuted for either political or religious reasons. And so the people from El Salvador in Guatemala who had been targeted by the death squads down there for that they were fleeing into the United States, and the Reagan and Bush administration, who were supporting the fascist governments in Guatemala and El Salvador, uh, didn't want them granted political asylum, so they had issued a a completely unlawful executive order to the Immigration Naturalization Service in Brownsville, Texas, ordering them to disregard the Federal Refugee Act. So we, we exposed that in the trial, and we ended up not only getting all the criminal charges dismissed by the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, but we also got an order from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals prohibiting the arrest of any further people in that district. Uh, hey, guys, I got a great new deal for you. It's called Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. Now, I want you to take out a pen and paper and write down Opperman 50, O-P-P-E-R-M-A-N 50. Now, fact is delicious ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes, you'll be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including Kato, Calorie Smart, Vegan Veggie, and more. Uh... There's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. Snacks, smoothies, and more. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or schedule your deliveries anytime. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. So there's no prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. Now head to factormeals.com front slash opperman50. And then you use code opperman50 to get 50% off. That's code opperman50 at factormeals.com front slash opperman50. O-P-P-E-R-M-A-N-5-0 to get 50% off. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For supporting the political refugees. And we came back up to Washington. And uh, during the course of that investigation in the American Sanctuary Movement case, we uncovered the smuggling of illegal weapons by the Reagan-Bush administration down to the Contras down in Nicaragua. And, uh, and we uncovered the cocaine smuggling that was going on from the Medellin cocaine cartel in Colombia uh, being used to help finance and fund the purchases of the weapons for the Contras in complete violation of a specific congressional enactment, the Boland Amendment, that had been passed expressly prohibiting the Reagan-Bush administration and any of their intelligence agencies uh, from giving any aid, direct or indirect, to the Contras because they had been declared by the International Court in Geneva to be uh, international war criminals for their having mined the public harbors of uh, Nicaragua. And so we ended up catching them doing this, and we uncovered the entire criminal network that was going on, run by Lieutenant Colonel Albert North, who was the deputy director of the National Security Council uh, for anti-terrorism under the Reagan-Bush administration. And we exposed the top leadership of the administration, got a special prosecutor appointed, uh, Judge Lawrence Walsh, who came in and indicted uh, the top leaders of the, the, the first round of them. He indicted out of the Reagan-Bush administration, and uh, they were all pardoned by George H.W. Bush. And, uh, and eventually the special prosecutor gave up on trying to prosecute them because both the Republican Party leadership and the Democratic Party leadership did not want to expose the fact that both political parties had been relying upon criminal covert operations, illegal criminal surveillance, uh, political renditions, assassinations, etc., for decades in supporting a completely unlawful American foreign policy, in support of major right-wing dictators under the false auspices is that they were just anti-communist, whereas, in fact, they were fascists. Uh, in fact, in South America, many of the fascists had been World War II Nazi officials who had been smuggled out of Europe uh, through the rat line, the Odessa rat line, into Brazil, in Argentina, in the Paraguay and Uruguay, uh, and they were they were uh, military advisors for the fascist regimes. In, in El Salvador? Uh, yes, they were all all over there. I, I had okay, no idea. So, okay. Yeah, so that and you know that, uh, Roberto Dubasson and uh, in Alacon and those guys had you know top level Nazi. Uh, World War II Nazis that were involved not only in being military advisors to them, but also in helping to set up the whole Medellin cocaine cartel that was uh, smuggling the, the cocaine that was being used to fund the purchase of the weapons. And the off-the-shelf enterprise that was run not really by Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, but was actually run by a guy by the name of Theodore G. Shackley, who was the Associate Deputy Director for Operations, the head of covert operations for the Central Intelligence Agency under George H.W. Bush. Uh, and so that's what was really going on there. So, so those were uh, a number of the cases 
that we did back during that entire period until uh, the, until George H. W. Bush was defeated uh, by by uh, Bill Clinton and, as you recall, by Ross Perot, who joined together and ran an independent campaign in 1992 and ended up taking 19 percent of the popular vote away from George H. W. Bush and caused George H. W. Bush to lose to Bill Clinton, with Bill Clinton only getting 43% of the popular vote. But, uh, but George H. W. Bush only got 38%, and, uh, and Ross Perot got 19%. So that's how Bill Clinton came to be President of the United States in 1992. Uh, and, uh, and so... Then in 1992, uh, I, well, we were waiting for the special prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh, to indict the rest of the criminal defendants. Uh, we were invited to come to California and teach. And I taught at the uh, University of California at Santa Barbara, taught a major course called uh, The Hidden History of, of, of America, uh, the, the History of Covert Operations of the CIA from World War II to the present. And and we have and we were asked here when we came out here to do to look into a major set of events that were going on up in South Dakota because of my past history having been legal counsel for the Amicus Council for the American Indian Movement. I was asked to come back up into South Dakota because I had become by earlier the uh, the chief counsel for the Native American Rights Committee of ACLU National. And so we went in and investigated it and found out that the, that the uh, white power structure in South Dakota, all under Janklow, William Janklow, who was the assistant attorney general back in 1973, who in fact invited the Nixon administration and the military to come in to, to surround everybody at Wounded Knee. That uh, this guy, William Janklow, was a right-wing uh, Indian hater who, in fact, uh, rode his popularity among the white population in South Dakota uh, by surrounding and, and, and trying to murder the people of Wounded Knee. But he rode that all the way into the governorship and was the governor, became the governor of South Dakota for 16 years. Uh, uh, and that's who was running this operation. And we discovered that what they were doing is they were in fact, having the Department of Social Services in South Dakota kidnap and take into custody and take away from their families and tribes some 740 uh, Lakota children every single year for an entire decade. And they were taking, so they took over 7,000 Lakota children away from their, their families and tribes. Wait, wait, it's 7,000? 7,000? 7,000? Oh, yes. Yeah, 7,000. Oh my God! Seven thousand. What's the population of Dakota? Seven hundred and forty-two average. Seven hundred and forty-two Lakota kids a year for a full decade, and we're taking them away and putting them in big, huge white uh, group foster homes, and starting to dose them with Zoloft and Zyprexa and a whole series of other pharmaceuticals that were prohibited by the Food and Drug Administration from being given to anybody under the age of eighteen, but they were they were dosing them with these pharmaceuticals. Uh, and so that's the, that's the thing that we uncovered up there and we discovered that the funds were coming in from the W. Bush administration into the state of South Dakota. Federal funds 
which they were using to purchase, largely to purchase these pharmaceuticals, and the, the bonus money was going into the pharmaceutical corporations, which they were then contributing to the Republican Party to, uh, <laughs> to actually oust all the Democratic uh, congresspeople and senators from South Dakota. That's how they ousted Tom Daschle, who was the United States senator from South Dakota, who was the majority leader for the Democrats in the Senate, and they ousted uh, Stephanie Herseth, who was the sole congressperson from South Dakota, a Democrat, and the person who became the congressman uh, for South Dakota was William Janklow, after he term limited out <laughs> as the governor. So he had been the assistant attorney general, then the attorney general, then the governor for 16 years, and then became the sole congressman from, from South Dakota, all under the auspices of this major criminal conspiracy that they had going to basically have George W. Bush filter federal funds into the state of South Dakota under the auspices of helping the Indian kids, and they were using the money to take the kids away from their families and tribes and put them into huge group homes where they were performing uh, pharmaceutical experiments on these kids to determine how much Zyprexa or Zoloft or other narcotics these kids could be given before they started becoming suicidal. And uh, so we've uncovered that, and that's still getting set to explode. Uh, we've now gotten the Federal Justice Department and the Health and Human Services Department and the Department of Interior and the Bureau of Indian Affairs to agree to withdraw $65 million a year from the state of South Dakota that they were using to finance this program to transfer those funds all to the nine Sioux tribes in South Dakota so they can set up their own all-Indian-run family services for their own children and recover those children. And what we've discovered is that, uh, that there are right now in the United States over 100,000 over 100, children under the age of 15 who are being sexually trafficked. It turns out that 63% of all of those kids have come through the state foster care systems right. that have been taken away from their parents and families and communities and put into, into foster care programs and then are then conduited into the sex trafficking uh, industry. And it turns out of those 63% of those 100,000 kids under the age of 15 that are being sexually trafficked, turns out that 40% of that 63% are in fact all Indian children. So there's this huge cottage industry. There's a big secret going on in the country of Native American children being taken uh, from their parents and tribes and put into these big, huge group foster homes, drugged with these narcotics, and then taken out and put into the sex trafficking uh, operation around the country and around the world. And it's a, a gigantic scandal that is, is yet to break, just like, uh, just like the Iran-Contra thing broke, just like the... The, the uh, other scandals have broken about Watergate and others, and this is the one that's in the offing still to uh, to be exposed publicly. So that's what that's what I've been doing. Well, I well I I I, uh, I am speechless. I I am literally speechless. That is one of the most impressive uh, biography. That, not one of the most. That is the most impressive biography I, I've ever heard in my life. I'm just in, in, incredibly in awe. Um, I, I'm gonna have to have you back for ten shows uh, because we gotta cover. No, I'm serious because we gotta cover uh, each one of these things uh, deserves a, a show of itself to be to be archived out here. 
Um, okay. Well, that didn't that didn't include the fact that I represented John Mack, who was the chairman of the Department of Clinical Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, when he published his book called uh, Abductions, uh, Human Contact with Abductions. He, he was the head of the Department of Clinical Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School back in the early 1990s when a number of high-level military officials from the United States Air Force and others had been sent to him to have them tested psychologically because they had had encounters with uh, UFOs or direct contact with extraterrestrials, and that they uh, did, they, they in fact, were sent to get this psychological test done to Harvard Medical School. And Dr. John Mack, the head of the whole department, when it was called in to do the tests for them, and after he completed doing all these tests, he discovered that they were, in fact, very much within the normal parameters of normalcy, and he was puzzled. He couldn't understand why people, you know, of that kind of rank and importance would have jeopardized their entire medical, their, their entire uh, military career by falsely reporting that they'd seen a UFO or that they'd had some kind of a direct encounter with extraterrestrials. And so he was so intrigued by what he was finding, he started uh, doing examinations of other people who had encounters of this kind. And he eventually uh, wrote a, a major article for the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, and he was a former Pulitzer Prize winner. He won the Pulitzer Prize uh, for writing the definitive psychobiology or biography of T.E. Lawrence, of Lawrence of Arabia. And so he was a, a published author, the chairman of the Department of Clinical Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He wrote this major article for the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, uh, puzzling over this extraordinary phenomenon of, you know, high-level military officials, police officers, you know, uh, teachers. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus lawyers business people who'd all had these kind of experiences and he was trying to puzzle about what in the world this really was all about and uh the new england journal of medicine uh dr john Rellman, who was the editor and publisher of it, absolutely refused to publish the article. He couldn't understand it. So he said, you know, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to put more footnotes in? Do you need more scientific jargon? What do you need here to, to be willing to publish this? And they just told him they wouldn't publish it under any circumstances. And so he ended up using those materials to write a book that became known as Abduction, 
uh, human contact with extraterrestrials. And when it was published, he was called up in front of a special ad hoc faculty committee at Harvard University, uh, and they began to kind of chastise him for having exposed this issue and embarrassed Harvard University by, by raising a potential challenge to the worldview of the kind of classic scientific positivist materialist worldview uh, that underlies the Newtonian Cartesian uh, presumptions. And so he, he, in fact, called me and asked me if I would represent him because you know, I graduated from Harvard College and the law school and been to the Harvard Divinity School. And so he brought me in to be his attorney in front of the faculty committee. And we ended up uh, offering to present to Harvard University a full panoply of witnesses and evidence and videos and everything. Uh, and it was all going to be funded by Lawrence Rockefeller, who Dr. Mack and I had met with, and he offered to finance whatever it cost to to prove to Harvard University that this was true, that what was happening. And so I did that, and, and we ended up, they, they, they dropped the entire committee. They disbanded the committee and, and left Dr. John Mack alone. And I ended up being asked uh, by people over time to participate in various uh, investigations having to do with this rather extraordinary phenomenon. And I had even earlier been asked to uh, serve as special counsel to the major investigation that was authorized, directed by President Carter when he came into office. Uh, as people have probably heard, he had seen a UFO just in a far distance, one of those lights in the sky things. It wasn't a walk up and put your hand on it operation like has occurred in many cases. But anyway, he asked for the investigation to be conducted. So the Congressional Research Service, uh, Science and Technology Division, uh, ran a major investigation of this whole thing. And I was asked to serve as special counsel to them. And uh, I did that. And it was in that context that I was given access to the classified sections of Project Blue Book. Uh, and, so the, and so I've had an occasion to speak at a number of uh, gatherings with MUFON, uh, the Mutual UFO Network, and International Congress, uh, uh, International UFO Congress, and, and others. Uh, and I, I view this to be one of the most extraordinary uh, issues that I've been involved in investigating. And as you can tell from the biography, I've been involved in a few. Right. Uh, so, so this is this is an extraordinarily important one. Uh, I teach at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Uh, I just taught this last year. I taught a major course uh, called the Alternative Theories of the Kennedy Assassination. Well, before uh, you get to that, can and, you tell the story about uh, when you went and examined the uh, the, the Project Blue Book? Uh, documents, and you went in there with oh, your yeah. legal pad, and you took the... <laughs> oh, yeah. Tell us. Uh, I was... well, well, what it was, it was interesting that uh, that Marsha Smith, who was the uh, head of the Office of Science and Technology uh, of the Congressional Research Service, had asked me if I could uh, could contact, as, as legal counsel for the Jesuit National Headquarters, she asked me if I could contact the head of the Vatican Library in Rome and see if they would allow me to have access to whatever information was in the Vatican Library about UFOs or extraterrestrial intelligence. And 
to my surprise and hers, uh, they refused to allow us to see it. And uh, so we were mutually disappointed at that. But shortly thereafter, it turns out that the United States Congress had cut out a half of all of the potential funding for the SETI program, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. And uh, since they viewed themselves as being prohibited by the Hatch Act from uh, lobbying to attempt to get their federal funds put back into their own agency, uh, they, they called and told Marsha Smith what had happened. Marsha had gone on to, went on to become the chairman, uh, the chairperson of the United States Citizens Commission on U.S. Space Policy under Ronald Reagan. Uh, and the, anyway, the, the, the people from the, the SETI program contacted Marsha and told them there was this tragedy that half of all the money had been cut out of their budget. And so Marsha called me and asked me if I would, as legal counsel for the Jesuit National Headquarters, you know, the largest single Christian denomination in Western culture, whether I would attend with a number of the astronauts meetings with the congressional, key congressional people to try to get them to reinstate the monies that have been taken out of the SETI budget. I agreed to do that. I got clearance from my, my board at the Jesuit National Headquarters. And so I went and did that. And the full amount of budget was restored to them. And so they were very happy about that. And they invited me to come and present a three-hour closed-door seminar to the top 50 scientists at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, they wanted me to address them on the theological implications of contact with an extraterrestrial civilization. So I went to Mar Marshall and I said, look, uh, I would like to be able to do some additional research on this subject in preparation for my going and addressing the top 50 scientists at the SETI program. Uh, and could you, you know, get, since you're involved in this investigation uh, for the president, could you ask to get access to the classified portions of Project Blue Book? And she was not optimistic that they would agree to do that, but she said she would agree to try. So she put in the application, and it turns out, to her surprise, uh, in mine, they granted it. And so they said that they were going to bring, uh, I don't know whether they brought it all or they brought a portion of it, but they, they, it was a substantial amount of information they brought to Washington, and they brought it downstairs into the new wing of the Library of Congress, uh, I think it's called the Jefferson Building or something. Uh, there was nobody in it yet. It was brand new. It had just been built, this new wing across the street from the the main office of the Library of Congress. And they had me go over there on a Saturday morning, and I had to bring my identification. So I went over and I presented my identification to these two suits that were out in front of this abandoned, this completely empty building. It wasn't abandoned. It hadn't even been occupied yet. And so I went there, and they checked my identification, and they invited me in, and I came in. They said to go way down the hall and down the elevator. So I went down the elevator and went down to the bottom floor. And I got out of the elevator and way down the hall. It must have been probably 50, 60 yards down the hall. There were these two other suits out in front of this room with the lights on. So I walked down the hall. I had my briefcase with me, but I decided that what I would do when I was in the elevator coming downstairs, I would take a yellow pad out of my briefcase, 
put it under my arm to just take some notes. So when I got off the elevator, I walked down the hallway, and uh, they told me that I wasn't going to be allowed to bring my briefcase in. I had to check it at uh, the door, so I did. They told me I wasn't allowed to take any notes or anything. And so I just walked into the room, and I, I surveyed the room. It was it must have been maybe oh, probably 10 feet wide by 10 feet deep or so, this little office. And it had uh, three uh, tables uh, with boxes of material on it. And there was a, there was a, uh, an overhead, uh, uh, like a film strip-like thing, a, a uh, uh, microfiche little machine that you create by hand. And so I opened up a number of the boxes, and I looked into these little cans of microfiche that they had microfiche copies of documents and pictures and things. So I began looking through them. And I, I, yeah, I put one of these things into the, into the microfiche machine. I was cranking it along. I, I, I realized I didn't know how much time I was going to have in there. And so I realized if I started reading documents, it was going to take forever. So I started looking for pictures. And so I found, I came upon these photographs of a crashed saucer. There wasn't any doubt about what it was, but it wasn't it wasn't the Roswell crash because there was snow on the ground where this this vehicle had crashed, and you could see that it it had plowed all the way through this field and plowed this big gouge through this field, and the dirt was kind of kicked up out of it onto the snow, and the the vehicle itself was was lodged in a big gigantic uh, bank. Embankment. I guess it was a dirt embankment covered and, with and snow. And these were like professional photographs. They weren't like amateur photographs. Yes. Okay. No, no. These are these are full. These were full scale official uh, gotcha. U.S. Air Force photographs. And, uh, and in fact, you could see in the photographs, you could see official U.S. You could see official U.S. Air Force uh, personnel all around the vehicle taking photographs. There were people taking photographs in the photographs. Right. And they had a they had a one guy with a, a camera. It was he was it was a shoulder mounted camera with these two great big rolls, those big circular rolls like on the top of it. So it must have been like in the fifties or something. This must have been. Uh, but they, they you could see them they were taking uh, film footage of the of the crash site. And and I could see the guys around the the, the vehicle they had U.S. Air Force uh, parkas on. You could see that, but I, but I couldn't. I couldn't get the the picture uh, uh, blown up enough to be able to read the names of the people uh, with any of the any of the uh, name plates on their jacket or anything. But I, I knew they were U.S. Air Force guys, and so. But I did notice when I was trying to expand the picture, I noticed that there were these symbols that were all around the bottom of the dome that was on top of the the top of the UFO. Uh it was a classic saucer shaped thing, you know, with maybe, you know, fifty feet wide. Uh, and it was stuck in the side of the snowbank sticking up at about a forty five degree angle. And I noticed these symbols that were around the bottom very bottom of the dome of the of the UFO, right? Where it hooks onto the, the flat saucer shaped part. And I, so I said, oh, wow, look at, I can, I can, what I did is I, I reached and I picked up, I grabbed the, uh, the yellow pad that I had and I opened it up and I opened it up to the back cardboard. Wait, Jane, Jane, we, I got I got I got yeah. uh, cause we're taking a break. This is that nice long yeah. break. I got to tell you, uh, audience, this is my favorite show. 
Uh, I have not even had a chance to ask a question yet, and I'm sitting here. I'm loving every second of this. We're with Daniel Sheehan. His website is danielpsheehan.com. His book is The People's Advocate. This guy is uh, civil rights royalty uh, in front of the, the Supreme Court before he was even out of diapers, it sounds like, right out, right out of college practically, uh, involved in every major civil rights case that I could think of, uh, Pentagon Papers, Watergate, uh, uh, everything. Daniel, thank you so much. We're going to be back with a whole nother hour with Daniel Sheehan, author of The People's Advocate. You can find a link to his book on the Opperman Report blog. Okay, welcome back to the Opperman Report. Uh, I'm your host, private investigator Ed Opperman, uh, brought to you by Audible.com. Uh, you go to uh, audibletrial.com front slash Opperman Report. Okay, we're here tonight with the uh, uh, Daniel Sheehan, his website is Daniel P. Sheehan. His book is The People's Advocate. Uh, one of the most fascinating guests, well, the most fascinating guest we have ever had. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Uh, before we continue, I just want to make a, a public service announcement here for the freedomslips.com. Uh, uh, one second here. Let me see this. Okay. Mass message to everyone who enjoys and utilizes Revolution Radio on freedomslips.com. The network has grown beyond the server network ability to service the users or the software. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Software that hosts and manages it. Uh, we need to raise 1800 separate dollars so I can – this is from the, the Nighthawk, uh, the, the owner of the station. So I can redesign the entire network to dedicated servers in a month when are experiencing the worst income flow in quite some time. This has become usually stressful as the machine manager as it's come to a point that I have to hand manage things nonstop to keep it running and deal with the hackers and the list goes on. I am in the process of moving the entire service to a high-end managed server architecture so we can separate ourselves completely from control. One dollar to whatever will help so I can keep this working. I understand I have been unusually cranky and quick-tempered, a uh, quick temper lately, and I wished I could accurately convey why, but in all honesty, I just become too much all the time since the basic automated procedures no longer work during 50% of our broadcasts. Is that good? Question mark. Well, yes, that's awesome. It means we are finally, after four years, making a serious difference. People, pe like the guest I have on tonight, people are listening. People are doing. But also the PTB see us now. We are a threat and dedicating time to making this a fight we all need to get involved in. So that is what I'm doing. 
I'm moving everything to a dedicated environment, not including streaming, as it is well mapped out. We need to get away from the Google architecture that you have no choice but to cope with in these public server environments. So if you can help, if you can help, please do. If not, I understand we're all just trying to get over the hump. No stress. Thanks. Hawk, please pass on. Okay, now here's the deal with this. The station is a, a rebuilding and redesigning their servers. They need to raise $2,000 this month in order to achieve that, okay? And that's how we keep the station on the air. And we keep guests like Daniel Sheehan here, a legendary uh, uh, guy um, that we're lucky to have uh, on our station speaking here. Uh, so uh, Mr. Sheehan, author of um, The People's Advocate. Now, you were in the middle of telling us a story about how you were, <laughs> you were in there uh, you got to come back, man. Okay, <laughs> you got to come back on the show. Uh, but you're in there telling us about how you you were able to see this these pictures of this UFO and start tracing uh, uh, the symbols. Yeah. yeah, I was I was I was tracing the symbols that were along the kind of uh, half circle of the of where the dome was hooked onto the saucer top at the bottom itself. And I could see these symbols, and I said, look, I want to get these completely accurately. So what I did is I opened up the yellow pad, and I opened it up to the inside back cardboard portion. And I slid the cardboard portion up under the microfiche uh, screen, and I, I adjusted the, the size of the picture so that it fit directly. Uh, I could see the symbols right on the, on the, my, the back of the yellow pad an inside a cardboard bag. And so I traced it very carefully with an ink pen. I traced the symbols. There must have been probably eight, eight to 12 of them along the, the bottom of the, of, the, of the dome. And I traced them exactly. And then I, I closed up the yellow pad and I said, oh, gee, uh, I, I don't want to get in trouble here for, because they said I shouldn't take any notes. So I closed up the yellow pad. I put the microfiche back in the box. I closed the box all back up, and I said, I better get out of here now. And so I, I put the yellow pad under my arm. I just walked out, uh, and the guys were a little bit surprised uh, that I just came right out of there. And I, I walked over, and I picked up my briefcase, and I started walking away. And uh, one of the guys said, hey, wait a second, wait a second. What's that you got there? And I said, oh, this is my briefcase. I just tripped my briefcase back up. And he said, no, no, I mean under your arm. And I said, oh, uh, that's just a, a yellow pad. And he came over to me, and he reached out, and he pulled the yellow pad out from under my arm. And he flipped through the pages, the yellow pages of it, and there was nothing in it. And so he kind of disgruntled. He just handed it back to me. And so I put it back under my arm and just walked on down the hall back to the elevator and went upstairs uh, to the first floor and then out the front door. And I went back uh, on Monday to the Jesuit headquarters, and I went in to see Father William J. Davis, who was my immediate superior of the Jesuit headquarters, showed him a copy of what I had traced, explained it to him what it was. Very interestingly, he, he looked kind of surprised. And he, he reached out and he, he slid open the drawer of his uh, the table where the desk where he was, he took out this little little envelope and he handed it to me and he showed me it was a photograph that his sister, uh, Duty, had given to him. And it turns out that her husband was a an air traffic controller uh, at the Seattle at the Seattle Washington Airport. 
and his best friend, who was a commercial airline pilot, had taken this photograph out of the window of his commercial air, airplane. And he had, it was this clear shot of a, a UFO just sitting right off the side of his airplane. And, and his friends had brought it back and said he didn't want to report this because he didn't want to get in any trouble, but he was going to give it to the guy who was his best friend, who was the air traffic controller, so that he could say he had at least done something to report this. And the air traffic controller guy didn't know what to do with it because he didn't want to get in trouble. So he gave it to his wife, Dodie, gave it to his wife to get her to give it to her brother, who was a Jesuit priest. <laughs> that would suffice. That, that would make them feel that they had done something to try to get it done. And Father Bill Davis didn't know what to do with it, so he just put it in this envelope and he'd kept it in his desk. And so when I came back and told him about what I had seen and uh, showed him the, the, the tracings of the symbols on this, this uh, UFO, he just handed this to me. And so I took the yellow pad and I put it in the manila envelope and I put it in my files at the, at the Jesuit headquarters. And uh, and that was the that was the last I had seen of it. Uh, I I when I left the Jesuit headquarters in let's see 1985, uh, I I brought a whole bunch of the files. I put them in the regular files. I put them in the files of the Christic Institute, and we had them at the Christic Institute. And when uh, we when the special prosecutor, uh, Lawrence Walsh, closed the case. Uh, against the the top level officials in the Reagan Bush administration, uh, they as, as soon as they when H W Bush uh, gave pardons to all the guys that he'd indicted, the special prosecutor became convinced that the, neither the Republican nor Democratic Party had the political will to allow these people to be prosecuted, and so he closed down the investigation. And when he did. Uh, George H.W. Bush uh, ordered the Internal Revenue Service to revoke the 501c3 tax-exempt charter of our Christic Institute. Oh, which really? Which set up out of the Jesuit headquarters as a 501c3 public interest law firm that, uh, out of which we did the, the appeals at the Karen Sokol case, we did the Iran-Contra case, we did the American Sanctuary Movement case, we did all of those uh, through the, the Christic Institute. And, uh, but George H.W. Bush ordered the IRS to revoke our 501c3 tax-exempt charter, arguing that our filing of the Iran-Contra case, which demonstrated to everybody what it was that they were doing, that, that uh, our filing of the case, uh, because no one had been ultimately convicted of a crime, and they said that even though it was a civil case that we filed, the nature of the charges were criminal in nature, and because no one had been ultimately convicted of any criminal offense, it must be that we were politically motivated in filing the complaint. Now, of course, the reason why nobody had been criminally convicted is because he pardoned them all. Right. And, uh, and then the special prosecutor threw in the towel. And that wasn't, it wasn't because of the lack of merit of the things that we had, we had alleged in, this, in, the, in the case. And so they, they revoked our 501c3 tax exempt charter. And because of that, we were not able to raise any more uh, tax-deductible and tax-exempt funds from you know, foundations and churches and other things. And so that when we went to, we went to California uh, to teach at the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, we just brought a bunch of all the files with us. We put them into a big 18-wheel 
uh, tractor trailer and brought it out to California and stored them away here. And it turns out the Iran-Contra defendants were trying to get at all of our records. Uh, they were saying that they had a right to seize all of our records to try to, I guess just to sell to sell the paper uh, for waste paper, uh, so they could uh, cover their cover their costs of having defended the lawsuit. Anyway, so well, wait, the, the bottom wait, line wait, is, Danny, 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 real quick, because it's a small world, and one of the stations we're going to be rebroadcasting on this week is owned by Gene Chip Tatum. Oh, Joe, right. I, okay, Tatum. Oh, Gene Tatum, I hear you. Yeah, he owns yeah. one of the stations that carries my show. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> it's a small world, right? No, that's okay. It, you know, it we, is. Yeah, and then we say whatever we want, so you know, we have no problem with that. Yeah. So so, so the, the bottom line is is that that uh, what we did is we, we as I said, came to California and uh, we have been teaching at the university uh, in, in Santa Barbara, and then I was asked to come up and teach at the university here in Santa Cruz, and our younger son uh, enrolled at the University of Santa Cruz, so we came to Santa Cruz. Our, our older son, Danny Paul, went to Harvard College and graduated magna cum laude in political theory, and uh, then went to the University of Chicago and graduated magna cum laude in, with his master's degree. Wow. He's now in the process of uh, getting to do his Ph.D., at either Harvard or Yale or Princeton in political philosophy, and uh, and so we're here in California, and we we uh, were invited to uh, Sarah, our executive director, was invited to be the executive director of the State of the World Forum that was put together by President Gorbachev at the end of the Cold War, 1992. He brought together uh, all of the former presidents and former secretaries of state and secretaries of defense, and we, we chaired a series of meetings uh, at, up in San Francisco at the Fairmont Hotel, which is where the United Nations was founded, where all the founding meetings of the United Nations were held back in 1945 at the end of World War II. We held a whole long series of meetings with former presidents and vice presidents and secretaries of state and secretaries of defense, et cetera, and, uh, and the CEOs of the major business corporations and the officials from the U.N. Uh, trying to identify a new post-Cold War uh, paradigm that, that, would, that could just set forth a set of principles pursuant to which the nation states of the world could work in a more harmonious and cooperative manner than we had all through the 20th century. It was marred by the confrontation between the East and the West, between capitalism and communism, uh, that, that basically cast a shadow over the entire century of a potential thermonuclear holocaust. We were trying to get rid of the thermonuclear weapons. We were trying to get rid of the private nuclear power. We were trying to figure out a way to dispose of the nuclear waste materials that, that threatened to contaminate the whole planet. We were attempting to figure out how to stop the carbon dioxide from in the carbon uh, emissions being put into the atmosphere along with other global greenhouse gas creating uh, gases. And we were we were trying to figure out how to solve these problems when uh, when George H. W. Bush, you know, he started as soon as he as soon as he had got the hint that the Soviet Union might actually officially dissolve itself on December 31st of 1991. What he did is he he basically sent he what he did actually in April of nineteen 
1990, April 25th of 1990, what he did is he sent a handwritten memo to, uh, to Saddam Hussein through our uh, ambassador to Iraq, uh, April Gillespie, her name was, hand-delivered a memo to him uh, saying to Saddam Hussein that we know that you've been having a, a conflict with Kuwait and that you believe that Kuwait is slant drilling under your boundaries and taking oil from Iraq. And if you find it necessary to resort to the use of violence and, and, and military power against them, uh, we want you to know that that would not be viewed as contrary to the long-term best interests of the United States. And so what happened is Saddam Hussein mobilized 10,000 troops and put them down on the border with Kuwait. And then the H.W. Bush's Secretary of Defense, Dick Cheney, in 1990, he contacts uh, Prince Bandar, who was the ambassador to the United States from Saudi Arabia, from the House of Saud, and he, he invites he invites uh, Bandar to come over to the West Wing, and Dick Cheney, and uh, David Addington, and uh, Elliot uh, Abrams, and uh, Scooter Libby, uh, and we're, we're all there in the media in the West Wing, and they they tell and Dick Cheney tells. Uh, Prince Bandar, that we have direct evidence, intelligence evidence, that Saddam Hussein is getting ready to invade Kuwait and to occupy Kuwait, uh, and we have equally strong evidence, intelligence evidence, that once he occupies Kuwait, he's going to go into Saudi Arabia and overthrow the House of Saud and take over Saudi Arabia. And then Dick, Dick Cheney shows Prince Bandar real-time NSA photographs of the 10,000 troops all assembling on the Kuwaiti border. And, he said, and so he says, and look, if in fact our intelligence is correct and he does invade Kuwait, uh, will you agree to invite me, Dick Cheney, to come to Saudi Arabia and meet with King Farood and Crown Prince Abdullah and, and invoke an old secret 1972 treaty that Henry Kissinger uh, and, and uh, Richard Nixon uh, established back in August of 1972 on their way back from China, their secret meetings in China, where they went over on the Blackbird, the SR-71. And then when they were flying back, they stopped in Saudi Arabia and met with King Faisal at that time in, in 1972. And they also met with, uh, with Pahlavi, the Shah of Iran, over in Iran. And they ended up signing a secret contract renewing the 60-year-old exclusive uh, oil lease that was signed uh, by the seven uh, Arab American oil corporations, the Aramco, that they, they established the 60-year the exclusive lease for the oil in the Middle Eastern oil fields with those Western oil companies, and they set up these potentates that, that the families, such as the Pavlavi family in Iran, the Kuwaiti royal family, the the uh, the Saud, the House of Saud, uh, Abu Adi, Abu Adiz, you know, in Saudi Arabia, and what they did is in exchange for those families uh, agreeing to sign this lease, giving 90% of all the oil to the to the Western oil companies, they would be given 10% of all the profits personally for their families if they would do this. And so that what, what, what uh, they did in 1972, Henry Kissinger, in August of 1972, on the way back from China, they stopped in and they said, look, let's renegotiate this 60-year uh, lease agreement that was signed back in 1920 
uh, because it's going to be expiring, you know, in 1980. And here it is, 1972. But Kissinger and Nixon wanted to get out ahead of that and renew the contract. And so they negotiated the renewal of the contract. And what they said is, look, we will agree in the renewed oil lease, we'll allow you to raise the price of oil from the equivalent of 34 cents a gallon at the pump, which it was then, up to $1.34 at the ga- uh, uh, per gallon at the pump. You know, If you will agree to use that extra dollar per gallon, in part, number one, to purchase military equipment, high-level sophisticated military equipment for the Saudi government and for the Iraqi government, if you will purchase it exclusively from U.S. military contractors, such as the AWACS, uh, uh, AWACS radar planes, the over-the-horizon radar, uh, F-16s at that time, if you will buy them all from American uh, military suppliers, number one. Number two, that you use this, another portion of that dollar uh, a gallon at the pump increase, if you use it to build six major military airfields in Saudi Arabia and Iraq that are, that, where we can land U.S. military transports and to dredge out the harbors, four major harbors in Saudi Arabia and in Iraq, to, to dredge out these harbors so as to take American warships. And number three, if in fact either Russia or the Soviet Russia or China make a feint to try to occupy the, the, East, the Middle Eastern oil fields, you will agree to invite the United States in to occupy those military bases and to occupy those, those harbors with our warships to protect the Middle Eastern oil fields. And that was the secret contract. That was the secret renegotiated uh, exclusive lease agreement that was signed in August of 1972 by Henry Kissinger and, and Nixon. So what happened is Dick Cheney decided that what he would do in, in George W. H. W. Bush, what they did is they, they gave this, this handwritten memo to Saddam Hussein to instigate him into going in and invading Kuwait, thinking he'd been given the green light to do so by the United States, by, by H. W. Bush, who, who Saddam Hussein had known for years, from the time that H. W. was the head of the CIA, who had private contacts and negotiations and stuff with Saddam Hussein, okay? What he did is he, he tricked him into going into Kuwait, and as soon as he went into Kuwait, what happened is Dick Cheney flew over to Saudi Arabia and met with King Farouk and Crown Prince Abdullah and said, see, we told you that this was going to happen, and we told you that we had additional information that once he went in and occupied Kuwait, he was going to come into Saudi Arabia and try to overthrow you in the House of Saud. So, so that so that we have that uh, what we will do is uh, we will agree to come in if you will invite us in to occupy these these uh, bring our warships into these harbors you've dredged out and land our military transports here on these these military fields that you've built for us that if you will invite us in, we will come in and protect you, right? And so that, that was, they tried to invoke the treaty, even though it was neither the Soviet Union nor China that had made any type of a feint as occupying the oil fields. What they were doing is they were getting set to occupy the oil fields themselves. And that's what they did. And so that while, while King Farouk and Crown Prince Abdullah had that request under consideration, 
the chief of security for the House of Saud, Turkey bin Faisal, who was the son of King Faisal, who had been assassinated, who would have been the king if, in fact, he hadn't been, uh, if his father hadn't been assassinated when he was still in his infancy. And that's what allowed King Faoud, the, old, the younger brother of Faisal, to become king. Right? So, but but uh, Turkey bin Faisal had been made the chief of security for the House of Saud and for Saudi Arabia, and he had been for 26 years the chief of security. And so he found out about this meeting taking place between King Faoud and Crown Prince Abdullah along with Dick Cheney. And so he <clears throat> asked to have uh, a second meeting. He said, don't, don't enter into that agreement with them. Let me meet with you in the morning and propose an alternative to you. So they agreed. And what happened is the following morning, Turkey bin Faisal comes into the meeting. And this is like in August of 1990. And so the the Turkey bin Faisal comes into the meeting with King Farouk and Crown Prince Abdullah. And he brings with him uh, Khalil Mafus, who is the head of the Royal Saudi Family Bank. And he brings with him Mohammed, Mohammed Baroum, who is the heir to the wealthiest family in Saudi Arabia, who owns all the cement and steel companies. And they've made billions of dollars dredging out the harbors and building those bases along with the family of Osama bin Laden. Right? So they come in, the three of them come in, uh, Turkey bin Faisal, uh, uh, Khalil Mafus, and Mohammed Baroum. They come into the meeting and they say, look, We've got an alternative proposal. Do not invite the infidels into the Holy Land. If they come in, they will occupy the Holy Lands and they won't leave. So we have another alternative. Is they turn, they open up the door, and into the room with King Farouk and Crown Prince Abdullah walks Osama bin Laden. The best friend of Turkey bin Faisal, since they were four years old as children, and he walks in and he says, look at I have a proposal. I will. I've got ten thousand uh, uh, troops, Mujahideen troops, sitting up in the Khyber Pass that have just got their battle hardened. They've just gotten through kicking the crap out of the Soviet Union and <clears throat> driving them out of Afghanistan. So I can bring them down, and we will drive Saddam Hussein back out of Kuwait and back into Iraq. And you don't need to invite the infidels in because if you invite them in, they won't leave. And he said, so please, and he spent an hour and a half with big wall charts and everything showing how he can mount a major military operation and in, in, in drive Saddam Hussein back into, into Iraq. So he leaves. The three of them leave, four of them leave, and, and Crown Prince Abdullah and King Faoud are discussing what to do about this. And it turns out that Dick Cheney was still there in the palace, and he'd found out that there had been this other meeting offering an alternative solution. So he asks for a second meeting, and he comes down, and he meets with King Farouk and Crown Prince Abdullah, and he says, look, I've got a sweetener for the deal. He says, not only will we agree if you'll invite us in to occupy the oil fields here with our, with our military troops in these six bases and our warships in these four harbors, if you will invite us in, we will protect you not only against Saddam Hussein coming in to overthrow you, we'll protect you against your own people because everybody knows that they hate you. You know, we're the ones along with England back in 1922 that set up your, great, your grandfather, Abdul Aziz, as being the, the royal family in Saudi Arabia. 
We know that all the peasants hate you. They hate the thousand princes that you have that run around whoring around Europe and, and losing a million dollars at the throw of a dice at Monte Carlo in their, you know, hundred Mercedes uh, limousines. They all hate you. And so we'll protect you even against your own people if they try to rise up against you. And that was the deal. That was the deal closer. And so King Faoud and Crown Prince Abdullah agreed to invite the United States to come in under the auspices of the old secret 1972 treaty, and they bring them in, and in comes, and in comes uh, H.W. Bush, and he you know, gets the, the coalition of the willing. I think they had some people from Australia and New Zealand and a few other places that came with them. But basically the United States basically floods in in the first, uh, the first prison Gulf War, and they staged this massive invasion. They come in, you know, easily they drive Saddam Hussein back up into Iraq, and they say, oh, but look, we're not going to overthrow Iraq. What we're going to do is we're going to set up a no-fly zone. We're going to set up a no-fly zone so that they can't fly around in Iraq, and it's going to take 250,000 United States military per- personnel to occupy the oil fields to keep the no-fly zone functioning. And that's what they did. They move in, they bring 250,000 U.S. military troops into the Middle Eastern oil fields. And what happens is uh, Osama bin Laden declares jihad against them. And he, they, he, he oversees the, the bombing of the embassy down in Africa. He oversees the bombing of the, uh, the marine barracks. And he also then they attack the, uh, the USS uh, Coal in the, in the harbor in Yemen. And so they mount this jihad against them. And so then what happens is is H.W. Uh, Bush mounts this great big thing saying, oh, look, at uh, these people are attacking us. You know, there's a, a war of terrorism going on against us. We have to mobilize, right? And so, so what happens is he's getting set to mount this huge campaign where what they're going to do is they're, they're, when, when the Soviet Union does officially dissolve itself on the night of December 31st of 1991, what happens is the very next Monday morning, uh, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, who was a deputy assistant secretary of defense under Cheney, that, that uh, Paul Wolfowitz and David Addington and Elliot Abrams and Scooter Libby, they all gather together in the West Wing, and they draft up a, the, a 1992 United States Defense Department policy planning guidance document. And in that document, they say, look, we now are the last and only major superpower in the world. We have defeated the Soviet Union. There's no other, there's no other superpower in the world. We need to take advantage of this unique moment in history to establish full-spectrum dominance over the world, that we've got to establish our complete military hegemony in every corner of the world. And if any nation state or any group attempts to form a, a military capacity that is capable of withstanding the opposition of the United States military, we will view that as an act of war against us. And that what we do is we assert the right to unilaterally go in and in a preemptive manner strike against them and destroy that military capacity so as to maintain the full spectrum dominance of the United States military. And they write this whole thing up in, the, in, in January and February, and on March 18th, 
they they circulate limited copies of this 1992 United States Defense Department policy guidance document. And what they do is they give it to a limited number of people at the Pentagon in the Joint Chiefs, and they give it to a few of the members of the cabinet. And somebody leaks a copy of it to the wall, to the to the New York to the uh, Washington Post. The Washington Post publishes an editorial on the 18th of March against this, declaring it to be open and unbridled imperialism, saying that this is nothing more than a, a blatant return to the, the late 19th century American imperialism that had characterized the age of manifest destiny and the white man's burden in that whole colonial era that had preceded World War One, which, of course, generated the rise of the Bolshevik state that was the opponent to the, Soviet, to the United States. So what they're saying is that now that the Soviet Union has basically stepped out of this 75-year dialectical confrontation with the West, the West is going to should return right to their same, you know, manifest destiny, white man's burden, Caucasian imperialist venture that they were engaged in before, but to be undertaken unilaterally under the authority of the United States. And so the the Washington Post criticized this as blatant imperialism. The New York Times published an editorial against it that following Sunday. But the New York Times, the the, the New York Times Sunday magazine had a front page story, had a front page thing saying, American imperialism, get used to it. All right? So the, all of those forces started falling into place, getting ready to support this basic new world order. But what happened is because of these couple editorials against it, uh, there was a big furor. And what happened is George H.W. Bush, still the president in 1992, uh, said, oh, look, uh, we don't acknowledge that there is such a, a plan, a secret classified plan. But if there is, it would only be a first draft, and we'll have a different uh, position than that. And what they do is he and Theodore Shackley, the director of covert operations for the CIA under George Bush, they co-author a second iteration of the 1992 United States Defense Department Policy Planning Guidance Document. It's called The Projection of U.S. Military Power in the 21st Century and Beyond. And what they do is they propose undertaking the exact same mission, but not doing it unilaterally in the name of the United States alone. What they said is that they wanted to establish a new coalition to replace both the United Nations and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. They were both outdated. They wanted to create a new coalition. And the people that were going to be in this coalition were to be the United States, Canada, Mexico, Mexico not being governed by the indigenous people, but by the pre at that time. It was basically made the dominant party in, in Mexico that was made up of the Castilian Spanish, the Caucasian Spanish. And then the United Kingdom, France, uh, the new reunified Germany, Spain, Italy, which is the, the, the German, the, the World War II axis, and they said also the Soviet Union, the Russia. Now the, the quote is this, and even will invite Russia to come and participate in this, now that they have spun off all of their ethnic provinces. So what you see there is the massive coalition of all of the Caucasian nations in North America. 
they're in the northern hemisphere. And what they, they characterized this as the new Northern Industrial Alliance, it was called. And what he said is that the purpose of this new alliance is catching this. This is the actual quote. Says, and I got this from Michael Clare, who was the head of the peace studies at the University of New Hampshire. He sent me a copy and he got a hold of it. And what it says is that the purpose of this new coalition is to maintain the continued privileged access to the strategic raw materials needed by the members of the new Northern Industrial Alliance. Okay? That's the foreign policy of George H.W. Bush. That was the less radical, less unilateralist, less completely United States-dominated uh, foreign policy. But the purpose of it was the exact same thing, but to do so in coalition with all of the other major Caucasian nations to organize these people to basically stand up and confront China, the new northern, the new Asian empire. That whole thing that was, this is that, that whole thing that was, uh, that was discussed, as you, as you, uh, as you may recall, uh, by, by uh, Samuel Huntington, uh, that whole thing in the Clash of Civilizations. Uh, that, so anyway, so this, this is... This is what was, was really going. Are you still there? Are you still there? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was on mute. I'm sorry. I'm just so okay, No, no, I'm sorry. I was, I was afraid. I, I pushed the button on my phone. I thought I'd cut you guys off. No, no, but I got to answer a quick question. Well, I, I'm sure I wasn't putting you to sleep. No, the, no. The, 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 the bottom line is this. We know exactly what it is that they're doing. And the, what happened is George H.W. Bush was, was pursuing this exact policy. The, the second draft of the 1992 United States Defense Department policy planning guidance document explicitly calling for the establishment of this new Northern Industrial Alliance coalition made up of those particular people, and that they were going to reach out and that they were going to, they were going to bring in the Caucasian nations into this alliance, and they were going to mount this complete effort to establish full-spectrum dominance over the planet. That's exactly what it is that they were doing. And what happened is, much to the chagrin of George H.W. Bush, he ended up losing the election. Yeah. And he lost the election because Ross Perot ran against him, because Ross Perot knew that George H.W. Bush was lying to him. When, when George H.W. Bush said that he was not personally involved in helping to supervise the off-the-shelf criminal enterprise of Oliver North. And, and I know that because I was flying around in, in his Learjet with him, with, with Ross Perot. And Ross, Ross Perot was the guy that had me put together the wire diagram laying out who all the people were that were in the off-the-shelf enterprise. And Ross Perot was the guy that brought it to Bill Webster, the head of the FBI, and got them to initiate the investigation against them. That's how the whole special prosecutor investigation got started, by Ross Perot. Okay, so, so this is all the kind of secret history of what it is that's been going on here. Uh, I was involved in all of that, uh, and, uh, and so we know now that what's happened is that when, when George H.W. Bush lost the, the election to Bill, to Bill uh, Clinton, what happened is that Bill Clinton uh, fell back, along with Hillary Clinton, <clears throat> into supporting the creation of a new, more, now that the Soviet Union was, was out of the game, they fell back into creating a new 
this new, more moderate Democratic Party. They, right. they established a thing called the Leadership Conference, the Democratic Leadership Conference. That was that was started by uh, what's its head out of Indiana. Uh, but anyway, they, they 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 started this thing, and they 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 dropped back and come clear to the right of center now, saying that since they have no opposition on the extreme left from the Soviet Union, there's there's no longer any need for the Democratic Party to try to play the role as the soporific, you know, uh, so that the the hardcore right wing Republican agenda to basically represent the one percent of the industrialists, the robber barons, et cetera. Uh, and there's no longer a need for the Democratic Party to be offering sort of a Franklin Roosevelt uh, post-Depression kind of alternative to establish a, a democratic socialist or social democratic agenda for the people. They basically have abandoned it. Yeah. And, that, and therefore what's happening is the hardcore right has taken over the, uh, the Republican Party. The, the people who drafted the first draft that whole thing with Dick Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz and David Addington and Elliot Abrams and Scooter Libby uh, and Bill Crystal, <clears throat> they were all involved in drafting that first draft of the 1992 United States Defense Department policy planning guidance document calling for unilateral projection of U.S. military power. What they did is they pretended that George H.W. Bush lost the election in 1992 not because of Ross Perot entering into the race in, in submarining him because of his involvement in the, in the Iran-Contra thing. They pretended that the reason he lost is because he was too soft. Huh. And so what they did is they went right back to their first draft of that, uh, arguing on behalf of U.S. military projection of power in the world. Uh, and, they, and they set up a thing called the Project for a New American Century. That's where the whole uh, the whole PNAC thing came from. The Project for a New American Century came out of those people that did the first draft of that. And what happened is they hung out and took that position. And it turns out that what Bill Clinton did, you know, Bill Clinton, along with Zbigniew Brzezinski and everybody, they basically adopted the second draft that was drafted by George H.W. Bush and Theodore Shackley, the second draft of the, the uh, 1992 United States Defense Department Policy Planning Guidance Document, and they adopted the George H.W. Bush foreign policy. Yeah. Uh, and so, therefore, they set up a new dialectic that was basically a, a dialectic going on between the first and second drafts of that, of that post-Cold War strategy. And so the PNAC people, the, the, the Dick Cheney's and others, they basically ended up waiting out the, the Clinton administration. The Clinton administration was carrying out the George H.W. Bush foreign policy and domestic policy, getting into supporting the establishment of the North American Treaty Organization, or the, excuse me, the NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreements, you know, doing all of those kind of things that the, that the Republican Party was advocating doing, and basically created a, a new, more moderate a Democratic Party that was like a liberal Republican Party. And that's the Clintonian a Democratic Party. That's what Hillary Clinton represents. That's what Barack Obama represents. Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton as his Secretary of State and Bill Clinton, you know, and Hillary as the new presidential candidate all represent the George H. W. Bush second draft 
of the 1992 United States Defense Department Policy Planning Guidance Document. Yeah, there's no deviation. putting together a new Northern Industrial Alliance that is basically engaged in a multilateral effort on the part of all the Caucasian nations of the world to basically establish uniform military hegemony over the world. Well, then let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Because you've been been fighting since you you got out of college. Is there any hope for us to, to defeat this? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. The key, the key, the key though, is to, is to know exactly what you're dealing with here, to know exactly what you're dealing with. You cannot have the Democratic Party that is now under the dominion of the Democratic Leadership Conference, which is the new, more moderate Democratic Party that is being funded by the same basic people that are funding the Republican Party. Yeah. You know, the, the Republican Party has now become a right-wing fascist party, is dominated, you know, they, they cry and pretend that they're all being beaten up on by this extreme right-wing element, which they're mischaracterizing as the patriot, uh, the, you know, the, the Tea party. party. That's not true. It's, what it is is the basic core, the right-wing fascist, pro-capitalist, corporate capitalist uh, program of the, of the Republican Party that was, that was prior to World War II. This is exactly who they are. And these are the people that were the robber barons. These are the McKinley uh, forces, and Mark Hanna, and all the others, the robber barons that dominated the Republican Party yeah. all the way up until 1900, you know, until, until Teddy Roosevelt turned on them, and they booted him out of the party, and he had to try to run against them as the Bull Moose Party. You know, the, the, the bottom line is this is the same, the same ideological group of people that have now reasserted themselves over the Republican Party, and the, the Democratic Party has slid back to being a right-of-center uh, party that is advocating the multilateral domination of the world on the part of all the Caucasian nation-states. Wait, but meanwhile, so, wait, but what meanwhile, we need to do is there needs to be an alternative me- political party. There has to be an alternative political party that's okay. got to call this thing what it is. There's got to be a progressive a Democratic Party that's got to mobilize. We have the members of the of the Progressive Caucus in the House of Representatives. We have 67 members now in the but, House. But, but Mr. And the fact is, every one of them comes from a congressional district that has a college or a university in it, where people actually read books and they actually attend to the history and they know what's going on in the history. What we have to do is use this as the core to mobilize a party so that we break into four political parties. That there's the reactionary party, uh, that is a, that is the, the right wing party that, uh, became the reform party. Remember that, that while, while, uh, Ross Perot needed to have some kind of a party structure to run just as a simple independent against uh, George H.W., he established this reform party as it wasn't a party at all. And what happened is in the next election, Patrick Buchanan took over that. And so that Buchanan and the right-wing people should be the head of this reform party. They should have the Republicans be the regular conservatives. They'll just be their conservative self. Let the reactionaries have their own right-wing party. Have the Democrats become their normal moderate self, which is what they are now. But there needs to be a progressive Democratic political party. And it's got to be basically backed by the progressive caucus. And that's why Bernie Sanders... He's actually contemplating running now, uh, either as, a, as an independent, uh, which he probably will. But the and, thing uh, is, if, if, that, the media, if the media is calling Barack Obama a socialist, and a good percentage well, that's of the people... 
That's yeah. because that's because they're all they're all owned by the basic corporations. GE I know, but a good others. percentage believes it. They they fall right into that. No, but but that, that's our job. Our job is to re-educate the people, to educate people in the country, so that when someone says something stupid like that, yes, uh, they know better. Okay, and, and it's a, it's a major it's a major challenge yeah. because the, the fact of the matter is our uh, sir, you got to call Dagan back at the house. With the the people in our public school systems are educated primarily just to obey authority. You know, to obey the principal, obey your teacher, you know, work, be on, the, be on the football team, do what your high school football coach tells you, be a cheerleader, you know, get a job, you know, uh, go to a state school and learn how to get a job, you know, get the, and so that they're not, the people are not being adequately educated. Rudolf Steiner pointed this out. If you have a, a state-run school system, don't be surprised that the state runs the school to get everybody to support the state. Mm-hmm. Which you, what you've got to do in whoever runs the state, which is the robber barons, the wealthy 1%, you know, they're going to, they're going to indoctrinate everybody. They're going to own the major media and they're going to indoctrinate everybody. You turn on NBC News or CBS or ABC Evening News, it's one big propaganda story, right? From the beginning to the end, every yeah. single night for half an hour, you know, complete with what is the latest ceremony of giving medals to people from Afghanistan and pretending that the United States military troops are in Afghanistan to protect our freedoms. To pretend that somehow out of the blue, this some subgroup has arisen that wants to establish an international caliphate. You know, I mean, this is ridiculous. Everybody can see that it was a, a blatant invasion. They know perfectly well that all the rationale that was set forth by W. Bush to invade uh, Iraq and to, to have this huge invasion of the oil fields was, it was, was completely transparent. It, it, was, it was to seize the oil fields and control the oil. Okay, but we and have they, a blink and eye. They're doing it right now with ISIS, this crap over there in Syria. That's right. And we're not even blinking That's exactly what they're, what they're doing. doing. Yeah, so, so what I'm saying is that we have to educate our yeah. people. We have to mobilize. We have to educate our people. We have to, we have to organ, but we have to organize an, a, a new progressive democratic party and use the Congressional Progressive Caucus uh, to mobilize and to mobilize on the college campuses because that is the, that is the heart of the power of, of the progressive movement is on the college campuses around the country. We've got to mobilize the students on the campuses. We have to reach out to the members of the millennial generation. The millennial generation, the, the kids that are between 31 years old now and maybe seven, that group of people are, in fact, the second largest generation in the history of the world. And the, we're the baby boomer generation. There's 82 million of us in the United States. There's 75 million members of the millennial generation. The X generation, there's only 42 million of them in the whole generation. You know, in virtually all of the Second World War, the, the civic generation of the 20th century, they're all dead. I mean, virtually every one of them are dead now. Yeah. Uh, and so what we're looking at is the Korean War generation, which are basically a get-along, go-along generation. You know, what we've got to do is we have to mobilize the, the, the idealist generation of the 21st century, which is the baby boomer generation, has to rise up and elucidate the principles uh, on the basis of which the Constitution was established, what the purposes of having a democracy were all about, to push back the royalists and to push back the ecclesial class that attempts to be the one percent that runs everything and owns everything we've got to mobilize and we have to reestablish the old chautauqua movement the old chautauqua movement that was established by the united board of homeland ministry of the national methodist church back in in 1884 
set up 2,000 Chautauquas all across the country to mobilize, to speak out against the robber barons, to rise up against them. They established the American Union, uh, labor union movement. They established the women's suffrage movement that led to the, to the right of suffrage in 1919. They established the, they established the anti-child welfare, or yeah. the anti-child labor laws. They organized the, the post-Civil uh, War black civil rights movement. You know, they started the environmental movement, establishing national parks. All of this came from the Chautauqua movement. There was, it's, a, it's a spiritual movement, not a religious movement, but a spiritual movement that is grounded in the absolute valuing of every single human being. And, uh, Mr. Mr. Down to like one minute. Ethos. One minute. If people want to, we're down to one minute on the show. Uh, you know, uh, what, what can you, uh, if people want to donate, they want to buy your book, they want to get a hold of you, they want to support you, what, what do they do? I haven't, haven't contacted you. They've they got two things. They've got the Romero Institute, which is the new 501c3 organization that we have. It's the Romero, it's just the RomeroInstitute.com, R-O-M-E-R-O. It's named after Bishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador that right. was assassinated. Okay, but the Romero Institute, Romero.com. Just check on there, and it'll tell you everything that we're doing. You'll find a click on for the Lakota Law Project out in South Dakota. You can get a hold of me through DanielPSheehan.com. It's as simple as you can imagine. Uh, and just uh, and, and cl- click into our system and get mobilized. I mean, this is what we have to do. We can't sit back and just allow this to happen again. You know, it's like the White Rose in Germany in the 1930s. You have to bell the cat. You have to name the beast. This is fascism. This is authoritarian yes. fascism, and it's, it's got to be. It's got to be pushed back. I love you, man. I love you. You got to come back. All right, just call me. And Get it, get it set up with Matt, our, our PR guy, and we'll do it. Uh, man, I love you so much. You're, you're a national treasure, my friend. God bless you. Thank you for all the hard work you've done in your life. You've been fighting. You've been fighting for me, okay, my whole life, and I thank you for it. Well, that's right. It's my pleasure. I can guarantee it. God bless you, brother. Well, okay, you guys. Thank you very much. Daniel, thank you so Bye-bye, much. Bye-bye, Oh, man, I love you. Okay. He's got to come back. I love you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you.